Hello, everybody. This is part two of a two-part discussion that we started on Jay Sakai's very important book, Settlers, the Mythology of the White Proletariat. And you can find, we will link part one into the comments section uh, below uh, so that you can listen to part one. You can also listen to an edited audio version of part one uh, on our podcast. We are Solidarity House uh, Cooperative, and you can learn more about us as well as support our work at patreon.com slash Solidarity House. We'll just uh, turn it over now to Sean and Derek. Cool. Thanks, Matt. And hi, everyone. I think the second half of the book will probably be the source of most of people's disagreement um, with it um, for a lot of people on the left. It's sort of devoted, uh, most of it's devoted to his understandings of the shortcomings of our own history, the history of the, of the 20th century US left. And for me, the, the white left, um, the sort of its institutions and so on. So it's a history that is close to a lot of us. And like I said last time, I think there are productive and unproductive ways of engaging critically. Um, for example, like at the end of the day, Sakai is a Leninist, which I'm on board with, but I assume some listeners are very much not. And the important part, regardless of disagreements on tradition or whatever, is recognizing the concrete ways that class and race have historically been deeply bound up in one another and how even genuinely radical liberatory movements in our past, movements that have done a lot of, of good for everyone and not just white workers at times, um, how they've often failed to sufficiently recognize and engage with that fact to the detriment of their stated goals. And of course, I recommend reading it, even just a section you're interested in. It's free and there's a lot of specific historical detail um, that I can't do justice to here, obviously. This part, um, the second half sort of starts in the turn of the century. By 1900, US industry had begun to catch up and surpass that of the UK, the sort of world empire workshop of the world hegemon. With that came the need to expand markets for industrial goods and find a, a, a greater source of cheap labor power in the form of an industrial proletariat. This was actually met um, by Eastern European immigration, including Germans, Swedes, uh, Italians. Um, I think we talked about it last time, but these were very like, at first these were very sort of sectioned off by ethnicity or nationality. And at that time, whiteness had not really become what it is today. And Sakai says that in the US empire, nationality differences have always been disguised as racial differences as a means of justifying conquest and exploitation. So initially these immigrants were classified as members of a genetically different and backward uh, race uh, compared to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Obviously there was being thought of as um, this sort of underclass uh, that was potentially dangerous. Um, they were called communistic and revolutionary races, these immigrants, and colonized people, uh, more sort of 
lumped into similar groups at first. Although, like, Irish people were never slaves in the, like, chattel slavery sense. They were never on the same level as Africans or indigenous people, but there was still this sort of weird racial ideology. So there was this tension between needing a large industrial workforce and the unrest that that inevitably comes with. And so the solution to this was um, Americanization, it was called, or the absorbing this European immigrant uh, laboring population into this sort of privileges and lifestyles of whiteness of the original settlers to split the oppressed, uh, at that time, oppressed European nationalities from the colonized proletariat through things like state-mandated adult education, night schools, prohibition of non-English languages in schools, and so on. And many states, including Wyoming, had licensing acts that barred non-citizen immigrants from professional careers in medicine or engineering, which also affected some um, primarily AFL trade unions, um, American Federation of Labor. And Sakai views this period from roughly 1890 to 1920 with this sort of large influx of immigrants, um, Americanization that was still incomplete, and the ascent of U.S. industry and eventually U.S. empire represented the most exploited Euro-American proletariat with the highest ever degree of class consciousness and militancy in history. But he argues that they were ultimately unable to impose imperialism, unite with anti-colonial movements and national liberation movements, both in terms of like African colonies, Asian colonies, but also internal colonies of the U.S., which Sakai would say would be Black people, Indigenous people, um, uh, Mexican-American people, uh, Chicanic people. And ultimately, they were unable to go beyond reformism um, for him. He uses the IWW as an example, does praise its efforts to include non-white workers, its explicit anti-American internationalism, its capacity to organize large-scale strikes. Um, he does have uh, <clears throat> somewhat of a positive view of it in itself, um, but he also notes that its decline in the 20s was not just a result of organizational failures or his disagreements with pure syndicalism, again, He's a Leninist, but the limits of settler radicalism, that process uh, of Americanization imposed sort of desire to ascend into settlerhood rather than liberate the oppressed. Um, and of course, resistance from the, the strict labor aristocracy and the state and the AFL conservative unions. It built, in retrospect, it built large unions and won a lot of strikes but couldn't challenge the imperialist state itself, focused mostly on unity within the workplace. Um, and a lot of its victories were pretty soon after reversed. He also takes issue with the fact that it was a legal union that still suffered repression and thus couldn't really meaningfully oppose World War I um, beyond making critiques of it. So this sort of takes us into the 30s and 40s and he views fascism in Europe um, and elsewhere as an attempt to negotiate the class contradictions underpinning the social crises of the time, a, a sort of class, class collaborationism or attempts to institute class collaborationism. Um, 
and he views uh, the New Deal and the sort of CIO uh, unions as sort of trying to accomplish the same thing in that they absorbed industrial struggle and helped discipline class relations while winning wages, uh, increases in wages and working conditions for people who were not marginalized already. So in combination with this, the compromises that came along with it and the broadening of the scope of whiteness, all of this was a prerequisite for the US supplanting the UK as sort of global hegemon, which was really completed after World War II, but in terms of global economic clout, the US was already ahead of most other industrialized nations combined by the 1920s. And he views this as sort of premised on imperialist war, World War I and World War II, um, which I think to go on a little tangent, I think it's important to see World War II as like a just struggle against fascism but also in many respects, an inter-imperialist conflict in terms of how it actually played out and what drove it. Hitler was obviously seeking to colonize Eastern Europe and contending for the position of global hegemon. Italy and Japan were explicitly seeking to expand their own colonial empires. And the US, UK and France were also wanted to defend their colonial empires and spheres of influence. The US was very interested in expanding into Asia and finding markets for its glut of industrial goods in China, for example. And Japan was a direct competitor uh, in that respect. And at the time, the allies, their territory comprised most of the land and people on earth. There was definitely a lot of sympathy for the allied cause among colonized people. Um, Italy, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia was a big sort of rallying point for Africans in the US. There was a, this promise of greater autonomy and freedom. Um, that was sort of the whole like ideological point of the war. So many in the US and in the colonies elsewhere supported the allied cause, but many were also ambivalent or for example, supportive of the Japanese, which uh, positioned themselves as sort of fighting, taking the fight to the white man. And obviously that wasn't true in reality, but that was sort of the ideology going on. And for him, uh, for Sakai, this uh, America's involvement had little to do democratic or humanitarian concerns, but mostly just expanding the empire at the expense of its rivals. So the, this process of Americanization of including people in whiteness was premised on imperialist war for Sakai, but more important was the concrete class struggle of the working class as mediated by race and the institutions of a settler colonial society. So the outcome of a lot of the militant labor unrest of a lot of, of much of the first half of the 20th century and of the, the post-war boom although a lot of this unrest was spearheaded by colonized people, resulted in the um, further stratification of the working class as a whole, bringing European immigrants into whiteness while granting token benefits to the colonized people. This is sort of exemplified by the, um, the New Deal reforms of the um, 
reservation system. For Sakai, this was neocolonialism in basically pure form. So under the direction of the US government, tribal governments were set up that were bourgeois democratic in nature or undemocratic for Sakai. Um, they had settleristic tribal constitutions, paid, elect paid elected officials, and a layer of civil servants, um, which sort of echoes the strategy of the British colonies, especially where comprador or opportunist or sort of loyal to the colonizers, quote unquote, tribal governments were set up to sort of act as an intermediary between um, the British and the people they were exploiting. There had never been a government like that before. It wasn't traditional in any way. And the effect of this was easier access to natural resources on the reservations. And similar strategies were employed with uh, regard to other oppressed groups, um, sort of setting up a comprador elite who would sort of mediate the, the, the conflict between them, ultimately sought integration versus uh, liberation. I think in general, Sakai views these uh, leaders of, for example, the black community as having won largely cosmetic victories, but nevertheless were portrayed as hardline radicals. These examples are A. Philip Randolph and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. He also, despite being a Leninist, he has a lot of criticism of the Communist Party USA and sort of views them as opportunist and largely a loyal opposition party that sort of tried to play both sides, didn't want to appear too disloyal, supported uh, concentration camps for Japanese Americans in the context of World War II. And he says this is sort of a, a recurring trend. A. Philip Randolph supported the Korean War. The Japanese American Citizen League supported the deportation of Chicanx communities. He recognizes that for example, the CPUSA was subject to repression in the McCarthy era, um, but this was sort of secondary um, in its decline in importance and um, influence to the post boom and the broadening of whiteness and settler privilege that came with it. Both the CPUSA and he claims the organized socialist left altogether in the 1950s. He views them as, as views the CPUSA and a lot of the left at this time as, quote, just the radical wing of President Roosevelt's New Deal. He sort of emphasizes that a lot of the, this privilege, a lot of the um, sort of standard of living that comes along with being classified as a settler or being, um, being included in that group is premised on the exploitation of others, both internally and especially after two uh, um, of the U.S.'s global neocolonial empire, the destruction of anti-colonial movements in the Congo or Guinea or the Philippines or Indonesia, the strong U.S. backing of comprador governments, for example, in uh, Zaire, sort of went along with the the rise of living standards, they were directly related. This wasn't an especially new thing in the grand sweep of history, just like unequal treaties or gunboat diplomacy or direct colonial rule or 
setting up indigenous governments, common mechanisms of uh, global capital transfer in the 19th century, today unequal trade and the sort of U.S. dominated world market and institutions effectively strips and plunders the neocolonial world, um, both, again, in terms of internal colonies and globally. He notes that the average per capita income in the U.S. went from 10 times the average income in the quote-unquote third world or global south in 1945 to 17 times um, that income in 1960. I think a lot of times we, we tend to think of the global south as, as sort of perpetually underdeveloped and always sort of lagging so far behind the developed world, quote-unquote, that like it can only get better. But um, in fact, like in a lot of ways, things have gotten worse. I guess the, the sort of conclusion of the book argues that white people, workers, like everyone else, um, every other member of the working class has a role to play in bringing about socialism, bringing about genuine liberation. But it has to be in the context of abandoning the special privileges and ultimately just the the breakup of the U.S. empire and end of the U.S. as we know it. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Um, first off, I really wanted to thank you for such a clear and concise summary and for the notes that you sent that to me seemed like you did an amazing job with condensing a lot of information into a really small space so much information per square inch, and also at the same time, how to be very accessible. I really enjoyed your notes. I wish I had more time to go through the other suggested readings. Um, I only clicked on the one link that you sent, and it turned out to be an entire book. So I just like kind of skimmed through some of the chapters that caught my attention. So. Uh, thanks for providing that information. It's more for me to delve into later. There were a few topics that I both had questions about and maybe I just thought were interesting and might merit some more discussion. Let me check my notes here. First of all, near the end of what you said about how the average per capita income in the U.S. was 10 times that of, let's see, 10 times that of third world income in 1945 and then increased to 17 times in 15 years. That system, I, get, I think, kind of coming not to a full realization, but realizing that that system exists played a major part in my radicalization, radicalization personally. And with me, like in a process two or three years ago where I noticed that, yeah, I was being screwed over by capitalism and yet the exorbitant wealth in the nation that I live is built upon the, the overexploitation of the rest of the world. That's a very important concept for people to understand, I think. Um, I thought the history that we went over about Communist Party of the USA was pretty interesting. From what I thought I understood before, maybe you can correct me if I go astray, Communist Party, I believe, was originally at one point like the main apparatus of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in helping build their sphere of influence in their main political rival. And also 
the whole organization basically was overrun by FBI infiltration at some point, and they still exist today in a marginal capacity compared to other communist organizations. But I, I think it's interesting the the way that uh, Jason Kai criticizes them throughout the book. I do remember earlier on in the book how he says that the CPUSA kind of glorifies and romanticizes the Bacon's Rebellion, where it, um, as if it were like an example of working people taking back what's theirs when it was really just more theft of indigenous land. And also, I just wanted to mention this because I thought it was interesting. I heard a tale of a CPUSA propaganda poster that showed like Marx and Lenin majestically standing next to Washington and Jefferson as if they're the, it's the lineage of progress, which I think lots of other communists would see as quite cringe. However, when I tried to look up that poster, I couldn't find anything. So maybe it was just a myth. Maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. I don't know if I've seen that poster, but I definitely, um, there were, there was sort of a, and I'm not super up with my um, CPUSA history, but I think a sort of major strain was sort of making communism American and sort of building on American traditions, which sort of explains the root of a lot of Sakai's criticisms of them. Um, I'd also say one of my uh, recommended readings, Hammer and Ho, um, by Robin D.G. Kelly, sort of documents um, Black members of the CPUSA in Alabama. So I think there's definitely a lot of different strains to it, and it's a complicated history overall. Yeah, that I think that that image of Marx, Lenin, and Washington sort of is a very poignant summary of Jay Sakai's views of them. I'm trying not to get up too far off topic, but one of the things that this discussion has reminded me of was one of the books that we have here in our communal library is the work of right-wing anti-communist McCarthyist area literature, the book The Naked Communist by Cleon Skousen. Uh, I remember going through it just because I was interested, uh, mostly because I was aware of Cleon Skousen's religious work in the religious tradition I was brought up in. And it's like, wow, he was also into um, McCarthyist politics, huh? And the very beginning of the book is, I think it's a quote by, I believe, Samuel Gompers, but it might have been another influential member of the AFL that was uh, distinguishing the mainstream, more liberal uh, labor movement in the USA and making sure people realize that it has nothing to do with communism. So we would see if that has nothing to do with the actual liberation of working people. Um, the end of that book also it has a quotation of like, make sure your children look up to Washington and Lincoln, not Marx and Lenin. So it was interesting to see the other, the side of that where it's like, of course, Marx and Lenin were enemies of, were the ideological opponents of our founding fathers. I think it sort of ties into Sakai's point about class collaborationism as being sort of necessary especially during periods of crisis that like organized institutions of the working class can be quite useful to capitalists in 
sort of mediating these contradictions and making sure they don't blow up. Another thing that I think is interesting and deserving of a lot of thought is what you talked about, how uh, Jay Sakai saw World War II and basically the historiography of World War II that's popular in, main, in the mainstream compared to his own. That's a in, very interesting concept of how like where I feel like we're often taught in America that World War II is like it's boiled down to like a conflict of good versus evil, you know, the imperialist expansionist uh, Axis powers versus the freedom loving allied powers. And he points out that the Axis powers were, you know, they're expansionist imperialist powers who are rivaling the power of the UK and the US, who uh, <laughs> coincidentally also are global colonial powers who are snatching up territory all over the world. Um, right, and like Germany especially was explicitly modeled, like their colonial project for um, living space, quote unquote, was modeled quite openly on the US and the UK. I think the, that there, like I said, definitely like this recognition that fascism was this sort of like apotheosis of the brutality of capitalism, but also that the, the promises of, of freedom and democracy for everyone, that's one of the reasons the anti-colonial uh, movement in Africa, for example, or India, a lot of the people who had fought for the allies, um, colonized people who joined, realized that these promises were in a lot of ways hollow, decided to take up arms or join a political party and fight for their freedom from the US or the UK or so yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to remember that Germany and the Soviet Union weren't the only people who had concentration camps. Kenya, like a decade after uh, World War II ended, the UK set up horrible concentration camps and for the um, national liberation movement and just held on to, tried to hold on to their colony in Kenya by whatever means necessary. So as far as the recommended reading list that you left us, the one that I looked into was false nationalism, false internationalism, mostly because that's the one that had a link. So it's like, well, that's the easiest to check out now. And a big concept that I saw that was in that book was colonial communist parties. And the example that I read about was in Algeria and how, well, back when Algeria was a French colony, the Communist Party of Algeria was basically a puppet of the French Communist Party. And they basically patterned or patterned after the same uh, domineering system as like the Empire of France has over its colonies. The Communist Party of France demands subservience from the communist parties of the current French colonies, rather than what you might think would be the communist parties of colonial empires, the main focus being liberation of their people from imperialism. Yeah, for sure. That's why um, 
Amy Suzer, who's also on the recommended lead, reading list, that's why he left the French Communist Party, was there sort of sort of the same behavior that Sakai describes of the CPUSA of sort of like being loyal opposition in a lot of ways, despite following the line of the Soviet Union um, and purporting to be like anti-imperialist. And yeah, that is that is a def- definitely a Atlee in the UK his sort of reforms were premised on um, labor MP who was prime minister, I believe at the same time as the quote unquote emergency in Malaysia, where a lot of the techniques that were later employed by the U S in Vietnam were sort of workshopped on countless people is brutalized. So yeah, I, I think that's important to recognize that these organizations have complex histories with a lot of different strains and a lot of different people trying to like, work within them, but also a lot of very seemingly contradictory or um, hypocritical um, aspects to that history. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think myself, as well as many uninitiated and not widely read leftists might be curious about how in so many countries where like say even less than one percent of the population is communist why is it that they have the tendency to split off into a dozen um little splinters rather than uniting for the one common cause and i think that's dem- demonstrative of how that one common cause is often very much a question between them it's interesting to think about like the process by which a revolutionary-minded person might have to decide is the organization that's available to me working towards the same goals I want to work towards, is it possible for, for it to be corrected into whatever you might believe the, the right course of action would to be, or does it make more sense to form a new organization? Yeah, that's well put. And I think it, especially the, the sort of the one common cause, I think that um, might be a, um, I don't think anyone listening to this actually thinks this, but for example, the, the sort of vulgar critique might be, well, if we just focus on class, once, you know, the working class is in power, um, the rest will just sort of fall into line and, and all the racial stuff will be solved. And it's, um, like you said, hiding the one like common goal of socialists can hide a lot of baggage if we're not being principled in our application of socialist theory and anti-colonial theory and listening to and taking into account um, the people most affected by capitalism on a world scale. And I think that's sort of illustrates like there's idealist Marxism and there's materialist Marxism. If we're just sort of capitalism needs to go on to socialism and that's the most important thing and we all need to unite behind that is ignoring a lot of the ways that capitalism actually plays out and its dynamics and the people affected by it. One of the last things that I wanted to discuss real quick was a line in your notes that I thought was extremely helpful in understanding modern forms of imperialism that we see today was, I'm trying to find it, um, you talked about the pseudo-autonomous governments that imperialist powers will impose on the colonized, especially like with indigenous tribal government here in the U.S. empire. Yeah, and I, it's sort of a very long 
strategy that's come up in different forms of divide and rule and make it look like you're not ruling someone, but their own people are setting up this layer of colonized people who are like oppressed in a lot of ways, but also have separate interests from the people they're ruling over. And those separate interests are sort of premised on a relationship with a colonizing power. And I, I think it's important when, when thinking about that, that like comprador bourgeoisie or this sort of like false, falsely autonomous government, like they have agency and they can and have in the past, like sort of bucked the trend and gone over to colonized workers and attempted at least in some cases to, to sort of like find common ground and represent their interests. They're also not the primary, primary like people at fault, I guess I would say. Yeah, sorry, that was a bit, that was kind of rambly, but. That got me thinking um, with the example of like settler, settler colonialist governments imposing their own style of government on the colonized, whatever's left of them, how indigenous rights activists will often find themselves at odds with reactionary law enforcement of their own people and that got me thinking to of the example of Leonard Peltier, who is a Sioux man who has been imprisoned for most of his life now. It's back in the 70s that he was framed on the murder of FBI agents, given a, a spurious to say trial, and who has been the subject of international outcry for his freedom, including everyone from Soviet diplomats to the Zapatista Army of National Liberation to people like Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. Yeah, definitely. That's what's so great about internationalism. Even if it doesn't always go the way, all the way, it's, I think, those sort of connections and solidarities between people of such, you know, vastly different origins, but also in a lot of ways, similar origins. Like, it's always amazing to see. I'm very glad that this information is made free to the public online at readsettlers.org. Please go to readsettlers.org. There's tons of resources there that are absolutely free. Please, you know, support the work of uh, on-the-ground organizations that are centering and emphasizing indigenous liberation, decolonization. You can find out more about us at patreon.com slash solidarity house. Thanks again, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everyone.